0: Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and in today's teaching, we are going to be diving into the world of eschatology. Now, for those of you who don't know, eschatology is the doctrine of last things. The eschaton is the end of all things. It's the end. So, eschatology is the study of last things and what the scriptures talk about as far as eschatology goes, what Jesus has to say about the end times, about the end of the age or the end of the world or the new heavens and the new earth. That's all falls under the heading of eschatology. Now there's several um, widely held uh, views of eschatology. They get confusing pretty quick. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take each view Uh, week by week. And so we're going to start this week with the most widely held view, which is that of dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism, as you will hear, has been held uh, very widely for probably 115 to 120 years. It's a very new form of eschatology, but it's very, very widespread, especially within the evangelical world here in America, particularly. Now, there's other views, and in the Reformed world, there's a little bit more leeway on what views are held. The dispensational premillennial view is not commonly held by Reformed Christians. They generally hold to something more along the lines of either a historic premillennialism, an amillennialism, or a postmillennialism. Now, in today's teaching, Sam Storms, is go- who is an amillennialist himself? He is going to give us a teaching on the doctrine of uh, dispensational pre-trib uh, pre-tribulation premillennial eschatology. That's the, the the commonly held position here in the United States with amongst Bible believing evangelicals. He does not agree with the position, but he gives it a very fair shake. And so it's a very it's a it's a good teaching if you want to understand where. The uh, where the maybe some fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord might be coming from when they think about the end times, the last days. Uh, there's also going to be some references within the discussion afterwards to uh, a uh, a YouTube video that's actually called an Evening of Eschatology, where Sam Storms defending his amillennial position uh, debates with two other guys. I forget actually right now the 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 uh, the premillennial guy that that does his that defends the premillennial viewpoint, and then Doug Wilson defends a postmillennial viewpoint. But it's a wonderful discussion; gives a a good opportunity to to hear from all three uh, all three of the sides. On that debate. So I hope that you enjoy this teaching by Sam Storms on dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial end times view. And if you'd like to join us for our Reformation Roundtable discussions, we would love to have you be a part of, of what we're doing. We are a group of men who would love to see a reformed, a distinctly reformed church come to the Lewis County area. None of us are pastors, but we would love to see it be planted and, and have a church that is strong enough that we can actually bring a pastor in to, to shepherd the flock, we would love to have you join us if it's something that you'd be interested in doing. You can reach out to me directly at joecstout at gmail.com, or you can go to joestout.org where all of these Reformation Roundtable discussions are being hosted. You can go ahead and leave a, a message or a comment on them or fill out the contact form. If you want to find just the Reformation Roundtable discussions, go to joestout.org, find the Uh, find the link that says podcast, and then go to the Reformation Roundtable link, and you'll see all of them. That's enough introduction. We're going to turn it over to Sam Storms. I hope you enjoy the teaching. I hope you enjoy the discussion afterwards, and I hope God is glorified through the work that he is accomplishing here in Lewis County. Thank you.
1: When I was writing my book, Kingdom Come, subtitled The Amillennial Alternative, Um, I made my way over to Mardell's, and I found the section devoted to end times and prophecy. And I spent several minutes counting the books. There were 117 titles just in that one section. That's not the surprising thing. What was really um, eye-opening is that 102 of the 117 of those books was devoted to defending what is commonly called—and don't be f- bothered by the labels. You'll hear more about them in a moment. What is commonly called dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism. If you've never heard those those words before, I assure you, you know the view that it is designed to express. It's the view that was popularized initially by Hal Lindsey's book, *The Late Great Planet Earth* which came out in the summer of 1970 in conjunction pretty much with the Jesus Movement. And then, of course, the uh, multi-volume Left Behind series of novels that was written by Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. As I said, it really shouldn't surprise us that uh, so many of these 117 volumes is devoted to defending one particular view because most evangelical Christians— have never considered the fact that there might possibly be another perspective, perhaps even one more biblically based than that particular point of view. This view that we're calling dispensational pre-tribulational premillennialism has been the dominant perspective in American evangelicalism for about the last 115 to 20 years. Now, this comes as a surprise and a disturbing shock to many who advocate this view, is when they discover that no one in the history of the church had ever articulated in its full orbed form until the middle of the 19th century. There's a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, associated with the Plymouth Brethren movement, who first uh, defended and articulated this particular perspective. It burst on the scene in America through a variety of Bible conferences and uh, individuals, but primarily in 1909 with the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. I know how many of you all owned the Schofield Reference Bible? I had one, got my first one when I went to college at the University of Oklahoma in 1969, And as far as we were concerned, the notes at the bottom of the page were just as inspired as the biblical verses that were above them, which obviously was a very dangerous thing. Now, the question that I want to address here before I try to unpack and explain the nature of this view that I, I suspect all of you already understand to some extent is why people are so drawn to it. What is the appeal? Why does it have such a grip on the hearts and minds of Bible believing evangelical Christians. There are a number of reasons. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. The first, and to its credit, this particular eschatological view highlights the literal interpretation of Scripture. They want to say, we believe and receive the Bible for just what it says. And any other view, is kind of marginalized as, well, you're trying to explain away the Bible, we're taking it literally word for word. Now, there is a measure of truth and goodness in that, but also a measure of naivete, because quite simply, folks, nobody takes the Bible literally word for word. When the Bible says the mountains clap their hands and the rivers rejoice, you don't take that literally. You realize that's a figure of speech, it's personification. Uh, When Jesus says, I am the door, that's a metaphor. Um, We find symbolism, metaphor, simile, all sorts of figurative language all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. So the question is, are we going to take the Bible in accordance with how the authors intended it to be interpreted? Sometimes that's not literal, sometimes it's spiritual. So that issue is a much broader subject, by the way, If you go back to the very beginning of our series in Foundations, our first four lessons were on how to interpret the Bible, and we addressed that subject at that time. There's another reason why this view is so appealing to the people in the evangelical world, because it's exciting, is it not, to see a correspondence between biblical prophecies and current events. People are drawn to a system of theology that they think can be empirically verified by just reading the newspaper or watching the latest news program. It's exhilarating uh, to to contemplate the possibility that what we're seeing happening in our world has been prophesied 2,000, even 3,000 years ago. Then another reason why this view is so popular is because at its very core, it has an unwavering commitment to Israel to the integrity of the state of Israel and to Israel and God's future plans. Now it's not the only eschatological view that holds to that, but it perhaps does so with even greater vigor than the others. One of the things that we have seen really in about uh, starting in about the mid 1970s up through the present day is that this particular eschatology has been associated with the Christian right-wing political surge, the emergence of uh, the born-again, right-wing, Republican Party um, uh, perspective on national and international affairs, and most who have been behind this surge, and some of the names I'll mention in a moment, have been advocates of this particular eschatology. Then again... Uh, these end time scenarios that this particular view maps for us makes for sensational news. It captivates the interest and the imagination of people. When you stop and think about the best selling novels on uh, end time events, virtually every single one—I would go so far as to say 100% of them have been written by people advocating the dispensational pre-tribulational premillennial view. And then, of course, who doesn't love prophetic charts? I mean, I gave you a few in your notes tonight for us to look at. These meticulous scenarios for how history is supposedly going to come to a close is very appealing and very intriguing. I have to confess, I enjoy it myself. So it was only a matter of time for um, this particular view to come to be identified with conservative Christianity. If you were a Bible-believing Christian you just almost by default were expected to embrace this particular point of view. One reason for that takes us back in the early years of the 20th century. Some of you probably have heard of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Uh, There's a whole history behind it, but basically what happened was there was toward the end of the 19th and into the first quarter of the 20th century a massive moving away from the fundamentals of the faith On the part of mainline denominations. And individuals who were Bible-believing Christians, and to their great credit, um, we ought to be very thankful for them, stood up and said, no, we need to defend the fundamentals of the faith. And they actually wrote uh, five volumes called The Fundamentals. You can still obtain them in libraries. If I can remember the five, they are The Inspiration and Inerrancy of the Bible, uh, The Virgin Birth of Christ, um, his sinless life and substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, and his second coming. I think those are the five. And basically, the position was, if you don't believe all five of those, your Christian orthodoxy and indeed your very salvation could be questioned. Well, the more liberal modernist uh, perspective of uh, that was, again, as I said, spreading throughout mainline denominationalism rejected either some or all of those. I think one of the others may actually have been kind of a, the miracles of Christ may have been one. Some of the others may have been combined. So this supernatural perspective on Christianity was at the very heart of American fundamentalism and theological liberalism rejected it. So what happened was, if you were um, a Bible-believing, affirming person of those five or six particular viewpoints, you were assumed to believe in dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism. Nobody, I say that's not true. Very few among those who defended the faith against theological liberalism were anything other than advocates of this particular view. I mentioned a moment ago. Um, is it about? It's about this time that uh, the Schofield Reference Bible began to surge in sales and popularity, and it's, it's impossible to minimize the influence that that Bible and its interpretation of the biblical text had on this view. Numerous other study Bibles have since emerged. The Criswell Study Bible, uh, put out by W.A. Criswell, a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, where my wife and I were actually members for about six months when I first went to Dallas Seminary. Uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, put out by Charles Ryrie, who was my professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, The MacArthur Study Bible that John MacArthur has put out, and we could go on and on. What reinforced this view in the minds of most, uh, at least, American evangelical Christians was the increasing disintegration of society. Because at the very heart of the dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial view is that, forgive my French, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Society is disintegrating. It's coming apart at the seams. We're going to see increased rampant sexual immorality and um, uh, all sorts of other expressions of life that are contrary to the Word of God. Then you add another factor. Ever since the emergence of television, virtually every successful modern TV evangelist or preacher embraced this view. Um, I only have to mention Billy Graham as a perfect example who embraced this perspective. W.A. Criswell, let me just mention a few. Um, M. R. and Richard Dehan. Sometimes some of you all may have grown up on the radio Bible class. Uh, Warren Wearsby, Charles Stanley, who still preaches in Atlanta, Adrian Rogers, former pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Jack Van Impe, who's got to be approaching ninety, still has a local TV program that is decidedly and uniquely focused on this perspective. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, Louis Palau, Bill Bright before he went to be with the Lord a few years ago. James Dobson, Jerry Falwell um, of Liberty University who's now with the Lord. David Jeremiah, John Ankerberg, John Hagee of San Antonio, Texas. I struggle to think of a single um, TV evangelist or preacher who's been on for very long who didn't embrace this particular view. So you can understand why many Christians began to think that this particular understanding of the end times was as much a foundational and fundamental doctrine of the Christian religion as is the deity of Christ or salvation by grace alone. And therefore, to question any element, much less the whole system, of this particular eschatology was to expose yourself uh, to a lot of ridicule. And then, of course, most of the evangelical Bible colleges that were formed and established out of the fundamentalist modernist movement, 1920s, 1930s, and into the present day, as well as most theological seminaries today, advocate this particular view. Dallas Theological Seminary, where I attended and graduated, um, obviously a very strong advocate to this day of this perspective. Then you have all the parachurch ministries, Campus Crusade for Christ, Youth for Christ, Young Life, Inner Varsity, all uh, to one degree or another, we were advocates of this eschatology. Think of the more popular uh, Bible teachers of our day. K. Arthur and Beth Moore are both very strong advocates of this view. Uh, I can still remember because I was actually in um, Southern California in the summer of 1970 at a summer project for Campus Crusade for Christ, right in the heart of when the Jesus movement uh, broke out. I know it's hard for you to envision, but I didn't get a haircut for four months, and it almost put my dad in the grave um, when I returned. But I remember when Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth was released, that very summer. I remember going to uh, Berkeley in California and spending two days with the CWLF, the Christian World Liberation Front. These were the original Jesus freaks. Uh, But that book had a profound influence on the spread and the popularizing of this view. And then lastly, but not least, in fact, this is a very important factor, is the simple reality that the um, largest and most influential of the classical Pentecostal denominations, the Assemblies of God, advocates this particular eschatology in their statement of faith. In fact, if you do not affirm it, you cannot be ordained within the Assemblies of God. And then the broader charismatic world as a whole also believes in and articulates this particular Perspective. Now, with that as kind of the background, let's talk about precisely what is dispensational, pre tribulational, premillennialism. So, if you have your notes, here's what I'm going to do to try to simplify this because this is a massive topic. By the way, I'm not going to critique it, except maybe here or there, very minor comments. We don't have time to go into an analysis of either strengths or weaknesses. So I'm just gonna try to uh, explain to you this view by walking chronologically through what these individuals, and perhaps most of you, if my guess is right, would believe about how this present age is gonna come to its conclusion. So let's just start with number one. According to this view, the next major event on the prophetic scene is the so-called rapture. The rapture is when Christ will return in the heavens. He will not come to earth. He will come in the clouds, and he will catch up, translate, if you will, uh, all living Christians. They will, be, they will receive their resurrected, glorified bodies at that time, and they will, Christ will then return into the heavens with his people. That's where the language of being left behind came from. If you were not a Christian when this event supposedly occurs, you get left behind on earth to face all the horrific events that follow. This view says that this rapture is imminent, and what it means by that is it could happen at any moment. According to this view, it could happen uh, in the next 30 seconds. By the way, if it did, I would happily embrace this perspective and repent in sackcloth and ashes because I'm ready for Jesus to come back. Now, there are some, a small number in the body of Christ, who've argued for what is called the partial rapture theory. And according to the partial rapture theory, not all Christians who are alive will be caught up and translated and glorified, but only those who are living godly lives and actually looking for and living in anticipation of the second coming. So if you're kind of a backslidden, lukewarm uh, believer who's just kind of muddling through life and you don't really look with anticipation of the coming of Christ, you might get left behind. But... Aside from that, the, partial, the uh, pre-tribulation rapture theory is common. Now, why do I call it the pre-tribulation theory? Pre, before the tribulation. That's the second point in this view. The argument is, is that immediately after the people of God are caught up into the heavens, there will begin a seven-year period on earth called the Great Tribulation. And it's during this time that the sealed trumpet, and bold judgments found in the book of Revelation will begin to be poured out upon the non-Christian peoples of the earth. It's at this time, in some shape, manner, or form, that the personal Antichrist will emerge. No, I don't know who that is. Um, I don't think it's me, but (laughs) I'm sure it's not. But he will emerge as a uh, world leader who unifies the earth He will establish a covenant with the people of Israel, promising them peace and prosperity. But at the midpoint of this seven-year period, after three and a half years, he will break the covenant and turn his his, uh, wicked forces against Israel and persecute the Jewish people on a global scale for the remaining three and a half years of this seven-year time frame. Third, after the tribulation... There will be, or at the very close of it, I should say, the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon has been conceived in many ways. Generally speaking, um, pre tribulational, premillennialists would argue that it entails all of the nations of the earth who form an alliance against Israel, and it's at that time that the second coming will occur. Jesus will then return again, he'll come all the way to the earth, and he will destroy the Antichrist. The false prophet and all the people who had attempted uh, to uh, destroy Israel, and they will die. Now, it's important also to reason the whole complex of events that happen right at the end. Uh, the Antichrist persecution of Israel, um, the Battle of Armageddon. Um, it is also argued that it is, it is at this time. That the majority, not necessarily all, but the vast majority of ethnic Israelites who are still alive will come to saving faith in Jesus. And it's at this time that the second coming occurs. Now notice what this view believes. This view believes that the return of Christ happens in two phases. There is first this pre-tribulational rapture. Christ descends in the clouds but doesn't come to earth. He raptures, translates, catches up into the heavens all of his people. Seven years later, he comes in what is officially, we might say, technically, the second coming of Christ. It's often called the parousia. That's simply a, the transliteration of the Greek word parousia, which means appearing or coming. And so you have a coming of Christ before the tribulation to rapture his people, a coming of Christ after the tribulation to destroy the enemies of God and to establish his kingdom on earth. Number 4, following along in our chronology, all gentiles who also survived the tribulation will be judged. The sheep, remember the sheep goat judgment, Matthew 25, we'll look at it in a minute. The saved will be left on the earth to enter into this earthly millennial kingdom. The goats or the lost will be cast into everlasting fire and condemnation. So, you have people, now this is important to remember, you have people at the end of the tribulation, both saved Israelites and saved Gentiles who missed out on the rapture. So they're still in their physical bodies, just like you and me right now, unglorified bodies. And they will enter in and populate the earthly millennial reign of Christ in their natural, physical, unglorified bodies. That's a critically important element to remember because you'll see why in just a moment. Five, when Christ returns in the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, there will occur the bodily resurrection of Old Testament believers and those believers who died during the tribulation. They too will enter into the millennium to reign with Christ on the earth. It's also at this time that Satan will be bound. Uh, You read this in Revelation chapter 20. He will be sealed in the abyss for 1,000 years so as not to wreak havoc on the millennial earth during which Christ is reigning. Seventh, Christ now begins his millennial rule. Uh, The belief is that he will ascend a throne in Jerusalem. He He will rule over a predominantly Jewish earthly kingdom, although believing Gentiles will also be present to share in those blessings. And so at the beginning of the millennium, there are no unregenerate, unbelieving people alive on the earth. They've all been killed at the second coming, they've all been judged. But those who are saved, who missed the rapture and are still in their unglorified bodies, they enter into this earthly millennial reign over which Christ exerts his authority. Now, number eight, very important. These individuals who are still in their unglorified physical bodies, just like yours and mine right now, who enter into this earthly reign of Christ will get married they'll have children, um, they likely will have extended lifespans, there will be unparalleled economic prosperity. Um, many dispensations, in fact, my former professor at Dallas Seminary, J. Dwight Pentecost, who wrote a very, very famous book that popularized this view called Things to Come, Uh, believed that the Old Testament mosaic or Levitical system of worship will actually be reinstituted to some degree and animal sacrifices will will be offered once again on the altar. Parenthesis, I find that an abomination because the once and for all sacrifice of Christ has been made. But uh, that's what happens when you try to read and apply some texts literally that were not intended to be taken in that way. Number nine. Children will be born to these individuals uh, who, again, entered the millennium in their natural bodies. Many of them will come to Christ and be saved because, actually, Jesus will be reigning on the earth. He's not in heaven. He's right there in front of them. And unlike his first coming, in which people almost understandably could fail to see that he was God incarnate because he was weak, he was frail, he could be spit upon, flogged, eventually nailed to a tree— he will be in the full glory of his resurrection life right there in front of their eyes. And so most of these individuals advocating this for you believe that multitudes will come to faith in Jesus at that time. Now, remember who these are. Since there were no unbelievers at the beginning of the millennium, where did these unbelievers come from who are now trusting Christ? They are the children of those who entered the millennium in their natural unglorified bodies. At the end of this millennial kingdom, 1,000 years in, Satan will be released from his prison. He will gather all unbelievers, because not everybody comes to faith in Jesus during this period of time. And he will mobilize the nations against Christ and his people, and the rebellion will be crushed. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, where the Antichrist and false prophet have already been for 1,000 years. This view says at this time, at the end of the millennium, two more bodily resurrections happen. That of all unbelievers of every age, in other words, those who died before the coming of Christ um, and have been in this disembodied intermediate state, they'll be resurrected to be judged. And also of all believers who died during the millennium. Number 10, the consummation of... The end of this particular millennial kingdom will come with what's called the Great White Throne Judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Unbelievers of every ethnicity, every era of human history will appear before the judgment. They will be judged out of the books as are described in Revelation chapter 20. They will be cast into the lake of fire, which we talked about in a previous lesson, and then, understand, then, only at the end of this 1,000-year earthly kingdom rule of Christ, then will the new heavens and the new earth descend and eternity begins. Now, I hope you can see from that why this view is called dispensational, pre-tribulational premillennialism. The word dispensational I don't want to get overly technical with this. Dispensationalism basically has at its core, its most fundamental belief, is a very rigid and sharp distinction between Israel and the church. According to classical dispensationalists, such as my former professors at Dallas Seminary, God has two peoples. His earthly people, Israel, and they have their covenant and their promises that will be fulfilled in the millennium. And the church, his spiritual or heavenly people, that being us. That's at the very heart of the dispensational view. It's called the pre-tribulational view because when does the rapture happen? Pre or before the seven-year tribulation. It's called premillennial because when does Christ come back? He comes back pre or before the millennium. Millennium is simply a word that means 1,000 years. So, Take, if you would, the um, next page of your notes, and let's just walk through this, because I want, to, I want you to see visually now what I have just described verbally, and hopefully you can put all these pieces together, and then I'm going to do something which we have not done in past classes. I'm actually going to open it up for questions of clarification, and we'll try to get those recorded for those who are watching this at a later time. so. Notice that I've tried to chart out the pre tribulational, premillennial view that moves from point one to point eight. Point one is simply the time of the Old Testament, all right? Notice point number two, signified by the cross. That's the first coming of Jesus, his crucifixion. Now notice three, the number three is bracketed by parentheses. You see that? Why? What's the point? Well, very simply this. What I call old line classical dispensationalists believe that the church age in which we are living is parenthetical. In other words, God came in the person of Jesus to the people of Israel in the first century, offering to them the millennial kingdom, the kingdom that won't come until sometime in the future. That was what Jesus was proclaiming. He was saying, I am here as your king, and if you'll embrace me and receive me in faith, I will bring the fullness of God's kingdom in we will, I will fulfill for you on this earth right now all the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. People of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus as Messiah. We know that. There was a small remnant that embraced him, but a very small one. And so the argument of the dispensationalist is that in a sense, God, if you can kind of envision this, God put Israel on the shelf. and He's not really primarily dealing with them in this present church age. Now, in this parenthetical period, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming, he's calling out people from among the Gentiles, us. He's creating his church, his spiritual people. This particular time will be concluded, notice the closing parentheses, with number four, the rapture. Notice again, the downward arrow. Christ returns in the clouds of heaven. And then notice the upward arrow. You see that coming from the earth? That's to indicate that the church, all believers who are alive at that time, are translated or, or caught up to be with Christ in the heavens. Notice this occurs before the seven-year Great Tribulation, which is called Daniel's 70th week, which is another matter of uh, interpretation that's too complicated to go into now. So that's why you can see why we call it pre-tribulational rapture. Now, one view that we're going to look at in just a moment is the post-tribulational rapture, but I'll contrast it with the view we're looking at presently. Now, during this seven-year period, notice I've divided it into two, three-and-a-half-year segments because, as I said, it is believed that Israel will pretty much live in peace and prosperity for the first half. In the middle of this period, the Antichrist will break his covenant. He will launch a global persecution not only of the Jewish people, but of any Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ. Notice number five. This is Christ's second coming, his second advent. Notice the downward arrow, but notice what happens. Notice how it differs from the first coming. comes all the way to the earth to destroy the Antichrist and his uh, allies at Armageddon, and then he establishes or inaugurates number six, which is the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year earthly rule of Christ from the center at Jerusalem. Number seven, at the end of that millennial period, as I indicated to you a moment ago, Satan is released from his prison. He is destroyed. Then occurs the great white throne judgment. And then notice number eight, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and the inauguration of what we call eternity. By the way, just to Uh, a point to make here. You all have heard me say this, I think, on other occasions. It's very important to remember, and this is true, by the way, of all eschatological systems. All Christians who take the Bible seriously must believe this. We are not going to spend eternity in the clouds, strumming harps and, you know, playing tag with angels. Um, We are going to spend eternity on the earth, but it's the new earth. It's the renovated earth, the earth that has been delivered altogether from corruption and disasters and pollution. It will be redeemed fully and delivered from the curse that was imposed upon it because of the fall of Adam. And that is true of all believers. Just a question of when does the new heavens and the new earth come? When is it inaugurated? When does eternity start? Now, One more point. Notice at the bottom of that little chart. According to this view, the purpose of the Great Tribulation is twofold. First, to judge the unbelieving world for its rejection of Jesus Christ and its worship of the beast. And secondly, to prepare the nation Israel through suffering for her restoration, conversion, and eventual co-regency with Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. And this view argues that all those promises you read about in the Old Testament, given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of prosperity in the land and victory and authority over their enemies and the the like, those will be literally fulfilled in this 1,000-year period called the earthly millennial kingdom. Now, one more, and then I'll um, take questions of clarification. Notice the second chart that I've given you. This articulates a view that has become increasingly more popular when I was... um, I want to try to get my dates correct. I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary in 1977, and I immediately joined the staff of a church called Believer's Chapel in Dallas. I was there for eight years until 1985. During that time, I was really immersed in studying eschatology, perhaps more than any other topic. And I can still remember when I was preaching through 1 Thessalonians that I came to chapter 4, And I made it known to the people in the the congregation that I was no longer a pre-tribulational thinker. I had embraced a post-tribulational rapture. You would have thought I denied that Jesus rose from the dead. And I kid you not. There's something about the pre-tribulation rapture that many Christians, some of you perhaps, hold so tenaciously that it is so precious and the expectation of it in your thinking uh, that, that anybody would reject it must mean that you just don't believe the Bible anymore. You don't love God. Um, and you're on your, the slippery slope into heresy, which I was accused of doing. But I embraced a post-tribulational view in about 1983 or 1984. Um, and it kind of facilitated or kind of greased the, the slicks, as it were, to my departure from that church a couple of years later. But that's another story. Now, notice on this scheme that everything is pretty much the same as it was under the pre-tribulational view, but notice the difference is the descent of Christ from heaven, point number four, and the rapture, again, notice this view still embraces a rapture, the rapture in which the people of God are caught up to meet Christ in the air. Then notice the arrow continues downward, the point being Christ comes in the, heav- in the air we are caught up to meet him in the clouds, and then we continue the descent to earth, at which time the battle of Armageddon will transpire, Christ will inaugurate the earthly millennial kingdom. By the way, it's a very interesting um, point here that I want to make. In both extra-biblical literature and a couple of times in the New Testament itself, there's a very interesting word that is used. You know in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Paul says uh, that Jesus will return with the shout of the archangel and the sound of a trumpet and we shall not all sleep but we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that word translated in English to meet, it was actually a very technical word in the ancient world. And there are many places in which it was used to describe what would happen when a visiting dignitary, a prince or a ruler or someone with authority would come to visit a town and the people in the city would go out to the outskirts of their community to meet him and then they would turn around and escort him back into the city, kind of constituting his uh, formal entourage. That's the very Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4. I think it's, it's very illustrative of what happens. Christ returns in the clouds. He captures or translates all of His people to Himself. They go up to meet Him, and then He continues His descent as we constitute His triumphal entourage at the Battle of Armageddon. So notice, if you would, in this particular perspective, that the coming of Christ at the end of history happens in one phase, not two. The pre-tribulational perspective says it happens before the tribulation, but he doesn't come all the way to the earth. After the tribulation, he comes all the way. The second coming and the rapture happen simultaneously. Now, there is one other view that I didn't give you a chart to show it because you really wouldn't need it. It's called the mid-tribulation view. Uh, Those who argue that the rapture will occur at the three and a half point of the tribulation Uh, there are a few people who advocate that perspective as well. Now, I kind of went through this quickly, and I realized um, it it may have been a little confusing, a little bit overwhelming. So we've got about 10 minutes left, and I'm going to open it up for you to ask questions, and I'm going to repeat those for the sake of those who will watch this um, on video later. So any questions of clarification or commentary, anything that you want to say or ask about this particular viewpoint? Yeah, the question is: If you embrace a post-tribulational view, will the church remain on the earth during this time when the sealed trumpet and bold judgments are poured out? And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the comment was maybe that's why so many Christians prefer the pre-tribulational view, because um, we we prefer the idea that we're going to escape the persecution and the oppression that is going to befall those who have missed out on the rapture and been left behind. In other words, what was the force? What was the the, the driving appeal of the left-behind series of novels? Come to faith in Jesus now and be faithful, otherwise you'll be left behind to have to endure this horrific period of time. So yes, um, the post-tribulational view believes that Christians will be alive on the earth during this particular period. Yeah, the question is, it, it looks as if There is a judgment at the end of the tribulation. These people are destroyed at the Battle of Armageddon. And yet the great white throne judgment, according to the premillennial view, doesn't happen until after the millennium, a thousand years later. Yeah, I'm going to have a few words to say about that when I present to you what I think is a more biblical perspective in the next lesson. Do you want to follow up on that at all? Right, other questions, clarifications? Yes? No. Um, The argument basically is what is the nature of the wrath that is poured out during the seven-year tribulation period. By the way, you all need to understand a little bit that it's difficult to a certain extent for me to um, articulate answers to the questions that are being asked because you're asking me about a scenario that I don't believe is correct. So what I'm trying to do is to answer it in the way that those who embrace this would answer it. So the, argue, the, the point is this. And in fact, this has been, this pre-tribulationalists have used the wrath of God as an argument for their case, because their point is this. If Christians, the church of Jesus Christ, is alive on the earth during the time in which the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments are poured out, would they not then have to experience the wrath of God that Jesus has already endured on their behalf in the cross? And that seems unlike God, contrary to his character and theologically untenable. Well, those who embrace a post-tribulational view point out, no, they will not endure that wrath. What they will endure is the persecution and oppression of the non-Christian world, but they will not be the objects of God's wrath. And an analogy that I think is actually a very helpful one. You remember when the plagues were poured out upon Egypt uh, during the time of Moses, the children of Israel were right in the middle of all of those plagues, but they were protected. In fact, it's very interesting that in the plague of darkness that overcame the land, there was still light in the houses of the people of Israel. But um, the pre-tribulationist likes to contend, well, there's no way that Christians could avoid suffering the wrath of God that Jesus has already endured for them, from which they've already been delivered and forgiven um, if they're here on the earth during that time, therefore they have to be raptured out before it all starts. I think it's a very weak argument. But you've, you've picked up, obviously, on a theme that, that d- divides these per- two particular perspectives. Yes? Okay. The question was about the post-millennial view of the kingdom. I actually had an entire lesson prepared on the post-millennial view, but I had to make choices about what we... Could actually uh, get to and so I deleted it let me explain to you the post-millennial view according to post-millennialism as bad as it may look now and let's admit folks it looks really bad these are only short-term setbacks for the church of Jesus Christ the long-term prospects for the church on earth and the kingdom of God is that eventually the people of Christ will prevail Postmillennialists believe that through the power of the gospel, they don't believe it's because humankind are inherently good and we're somehow going to evolve uh, out of our wickedness into, uh, you know, a, 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 a lifestyle in which uh, the, the the impulses of sin no longer prevail. No, no, no. All postmillennialists have a very high view, a strong view about human depravity. But what they argue is that God has promised, and they appeal to many Old Testament texts that they think support this, that God has promised that before Christ comes, that the church will prevail in its gospel mission, that the vast majority of human beings on the earth will become Christians. You often read in their literature that Jesus Christ, when he comes back a second time, will return to a Christianized world. Now, there are two types of postmillennialists. Some of them say that, yes, he will return to a, a world in which the vast majority of people are Christians, but there won't be the social, cultural, political, governmental, educational transformation that other postmillennialists argue for. Most postmillennialists will say that as the church begins to exert a greater and greater influence on society, that every institution in our world, will be progressively transformed and reconfigured and based on Christian principles. So political, governmental, economic, social, arts, sciences, everything will reflect the Christian values of the Word of God, but that just before Christ comes back, Satan will be loose from his prison. He will launch one final attempt to crush the church. Jesus will return and destroy him. So... It's called post-millennial because they don't believe that there's an earthly millennium that follows the second coming. The millennial kingdom for these people is this gradual progressive emergence of victory on earth by the church of Jesus Christ. So let me just give you a hypothetical scenario. If I were advocating the post-millennial view, what I would tell you is this. By the way, I'm not a post-millennialist, although I hope they're right. I don't think they are. If you would point out to me some of the horrific uh, things that are going on in our world, um, abortion, racism, um, the uh, spread of sexual immorality and idolatry, the post-millennials would simply say, yes, you're right, those are horrific, but we are confident in the power of the Holy Spirit operating through the gospel of Jesus Christ by means of the church And at some point, there will emerge a time when the tides will turn, and Christians will begin to exert their influence globally. There will be a mass global revival, and the vast majority of people on earth alive at that time will come to faith in Jesus, and we will be the instruments by which the society and culture holistically is transformed. And that transformation constitutes the kingdom of God. That's the millennial reign after which Christ then returns. One more question, and then we're going to stop and move on. Any other questions or clarifications? Yes. Where is, in all of this? Where is America in all of this? That's a good question for any eschatological perspective, regardless of the one you hold. Um, My understanding, and this is my conviction, is America is utterly absent from the biblical record. There is no specific prophetic utterance that identifies the United States of America at this particular time in its history, other than those which speak of the nations of the earth that will align themselves with the beast or the antichrist and seek to oppress and snuff out the very existence of the church of Jesus Christ. Sorry all you Americans, but I see uh, nothing in Scripture that indicates uh, that God has given us a prophetic inkling, as it were, of what will transpire in our land that will be any different from what will happen around the globe among other nations.
0: I guess our group is, are we all pretty familiar with that? I mean, I, I learned definitely learned some, I mean, that's definitely the view that I'm very familiar with in terms of the left behind, late great planet Earth, that, that idea. I definitely learned. I did like, for example, I didn't know that um, at the secret rapture, and, uh, at the secret rapture, that believers were given their glorified. That it's taught that believers were given their glorified body at that point. I thought that the the the, the resurrection all happened at the same kind of at the same time, um, but it seemed like it kind of happened in stages. So that was something different. But is this pretty familiar to
2: most of you guys or? Yeah, the idea of it, it seems very, uh, very familiar from, you know, hearing things early on in faith and whatnot. I don't know, it kind of makes you wonder a little bit on, on the original pre, you know, uh, pre-rapture. What happens to all of the people during, you know, they're just hanging out? Are, are they hanging out in the clouds waiting for all the rest of the millennium and all this other mm. stuff to happen?
0: Yeah, they're like with Christ in in paradise or something. Yeah. Right, I don't know. It makes you wonder a little
3: mm-hmm. bit. makes me think a little bit about that. Sure. I think
4: that there was a lot of good stuff there. I think his, historically I had absolutely no frame of reference. I, I mean, I, I kind of knew that its origins and naming it was very recent historically, mm. but I didn't know, like all the all the things that led up he cleanly described all the things that primarily led up to a lot of people adopting it um, and i guess I, I that word dispensational i'm is is that in, maybe somebody can clarify here is that in contrast to covenant theology
0: good question. The dispensationalism and covenant theology it de- they definitely would be different Very different. Um, I don't know if they would be in contrast to each other, but um, actually, uh, my dad and I were talking about this on the way over. There is a continuity between the covenants within covenant theology, meaning that the covenant God made in the old covenant that those things aren't altogether that those things aren't altogether gone now, Mm -hmm. and there's definitely not a forking of the covenants where He's got his original earthly covenant and then his spiritual covenants. Right. You know, there's no the dispensationalism in my mind means a forking of God's people into two distinct groups, Israel and then the church. I don't know what you guys,
2: what you're understanding. Yeah. That's my, my understanding yeah. of that is, is just that, that there's this distinct, there's more of a distinction between, you know, old Testament Israel and new Testament believers. And they're very two different things. Yeah. Whereas, I, I feel like covenant theology or, and more so adhered to on the reform spectrum mm-hmm. is uh, we're all one in that you know
4: because it feels like the way that he was describing it and I don't want I don't want to put words in other dispensationalist mouths but the way that he was describing it here it sounded like if and that key was if the Jews had accepted Christ as their king in that moment then he would have been then we would have had none of this Hmm. happen but as a reformed person there isn't an if because it would, it was. This is the plan of salvation from the beginning, and so sure. like from from my just trying to wrap my reformed mind around what feels like an ar like a kind of an Arminian thought here. It's like, well, did the Jews have a free will element here that they could have chosen to follow Christ in this moment, and we could have not had to deal with a situation of crucifixion? that doesn't sound that doesn't sound accurate to me and again I I know he had to really condense things down but that's the way the dispensationalism sounds it sounds like they could have done that
3: yeah but that was kind of a straw man thing he brought up because Christ never was revealing himself when he was here to many people Hmm. on sure he even told somebody like don't (laughs) well many times yeah you know where he says he's not he's he's not you know John 2.25 but you know he says I'm not Letting them in, believe in me because mm. they don't really care. They're really interested in signs sure. and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. free lunch. So what was the what was the Because maybe I. Well, Strawman Oh. Well, yeah, right. It's it's like there wasn't uh, a free will. Right, that right. The students right. could have uh, chose. Plus, he had a string of uh, believers there. I was coming kind of going, well. Who are the guys that are on your side, Sam? <laughs> well, he and he's only yeah, making the case I, for one. <laughs> no, I hear you. I just was thinking, you, you slow down on all these uh, saints. They can't, you know. Yeah. Somehow, I guess they could be all in the wrong and mm-hmm. could be in the right. But I, I hear you. It, I don't know a lot about that stuff. It's kind of complicated.
0: I think what he was trying to do is he was trying to give it as fair a shake as he could because he, it was a view he used to hold... And it's mm. like very widely held. All these people hold it, so it's not a strange view to hold. Mm. So, yeah, and it certainly wasn't all
3: Tim LaHaye or something.
0: There. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, but you know it's, what's made what's, movies and books. But that but the uh, y- you know most people don't care about theology. They care about narrative. They they care about narrative to the to mm. the uh, oftentimes people as in general I think. Okay. Um, will care about narrative at the expense of facts, even. Facts and logic kind of thing will will die on the altar of narrative. And so where Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins really tapped into something, it was that they were able to put a narrative to a theology that got people totally excited about the end of the world. <laughs> you know, because the reason why, I think the reason why pre-trib is so important is that no Christian wants to live through the tribulation. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to be a part of the tribulation. And so we want to think, oh, God wouldn't make us go through that, right? <laughs> I, I mean, that's just, I'm theorizing a little bit mm. there, but, yeah. um, I, but I do think Tim LaHaye is, and, and, and for that matter, Hal Lindsey. Has anybody ever read Late Great Planet Earth? No. You've you read it, Ron? No. In the 70s. In the 70s? <laughs> what, what, what was your take? I've never read it. What? I couldn't remember Yeah, I've been so long, and I've changed my beliefs quite thoroughly, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, since that. I don't remember. Sure, there, there definitely is that sense of like excitement, though. Like, you know, oh my goodness, we are living in the end times. Like Mm. this is this is it. Like any any moment now, and and then you start thinking, like, man, I, I remember one guy saying that Christians kept being surprised to see their children. And their children's children, and sometimes their children's children's children, and and yet Christ still hadn't come back, and they were they were basically being recipients of God's covenant faithfulness in ways that they didn't ever expect to see, because they were so certain that they were in the last days, and I that's every generation thinks it's special. Every generation thinks, oh, we're we're really unique, you know. And and that's I
4: guess where I kind of like I, I struggle a little bit with. People who make a declaration of, well, we're getting to the end times or things are getting worse, like or, or compared to like on, on a scale of what, like I can imagine things getting worse. Mm-hmm. I can imagine things getting a lot worse than this. Yeah. And so I think that there's a lot of confirmation bias that tends to happen hmm. where we look at something and we kind of see circumstantially, oh, sure. well, this, this feels like this should be the end times because I am, you know, I'm, I'm witnessing
0: a whole bunch of sin. How, how much of that is just the fact that we live in a fallen world in mm. there? So. Or, or even everybody's you know bad news sells and so you read constantly about all the bad decisions people make. Very rarely does good choices and good news and wise living ever make it to the front page of the news. And so you're, if, if your hermeneutic is the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other or the drudge report in the other yeah. <laughs> then you are going to think you're going to be perpetually thinking, "Wow, look at this rampant lawlessness," mm. and if, you wouldn't be wrong. There is rampant lawlessness, but that's that's not the same thing as Bible interpret. You know, scripture interpreting scripture. Uh, you know, you don't you don't interpret scripture with the New York Times, obviously.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of sensationalism in in uh, in tying those tying those biblical. Um, stories and events to current events and yeah. all that and I, honestly it's it's just because people get excited over stuff right and because it sells in journalism and sure. you know you name it I think I think a lot of that's been over
0: sensationalized because right. of that. Well one thing you know obviously I I would love to see i say this almost every week I would love to see us be able to, us meaning the community at large, be able to plant a re- distinctly Reformed church here in the area. And and part of starting with this view is that it's the most widely held view. And um, R.C. has an, another, uh, like a 12-part series. And he starts off by saying that eschatology is probably more divisive than any theology all the other theologies that we kind of are divisive divided over combined it's like the most it's the most divisive one I don't know if that's that might be hyperbole but but if we want I mean I would love to to have to be I get a better understanding of where you guys all kind of line up on this and maybe tonight's not the night to to make your declaration of, of where you are because you want to learn a little bit more about how 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 it works and um it's uh but yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing I want us to be kind of working towards is like, you know, where, where do we fall on this as a group? Is there coming common, I actually was, I felt like as we went through RC's Doctrines of Grace, it was like, yeah, we've, I mean, there's not a lot going on here that anybody's like, well, you know, I really have a, I've got a really big problem with the, Total depravity of man. I don't. I don't. I just don't see the depravity out there. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody. Knows. And you're out. Yeah, that's right. And we we got rid of that.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. Yeah.
3: All right. He's not even here to defend himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna listen, listen to this later. <laughs> oh man. Oh, yeah. That was that was Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, so, you, what, so, what do you think about um, church churches holding to a certain doctrine of eschatology?
0: Um, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you. Um, just because it's no secret I'm, that I'm postmillennial, um, which is probably one of the least held held views. So, if you're looking for you know kind of safety in numbers, postmillennialism is probably not where to look. Um, but one of one of the things in, in the Q and A that postmillennialism gets brought up, and Sam says. I don't, I don't think they're right, but I really hope they're right. <laughs> it's like of all the views, I hope the post-millennials are the ones that are right. Um, I think that eventually, the church will achieve unity on their eschatology. We weren't always unified on the Trinity. We weren't always unified on the on Christ's, the nature of Christ. Um, and it took us hundreds of years to get unity on those things, to where if you deny the Trinity, you're out. You know, you, you can't you can be something, you just can't be a Christian, you know. And, and I think eschatology, I'm hopeful, that eschatology will get to that point. Um, in the here and now, though, uh, you know, I would love, once again, I would love to see oneness of mind. One of the interesting things, we talked about Babel earlier. And we t- we hear, we read that God confused um, their tongues. Or we oftentimes just immediately think language, which I think is true. Um, but there's also an argument that God confused That that God confused their purpose. Like they all began to have different goals and and things that they they cared about and things that they wanted to emphasize. And that was another thing that he confused, not just their language. So now all of a sudden, this group of people has an emphasis and it has things they care about that this group of people doesn't care about anymore. So I think that with unity of the spirit, it would be a good idea to try to get to a, a place of unity. But I understand that it's the kind of thing that I mean. I wouldn't want a church to 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 stand or fall based off of eschatology alone. I would I would rather. I mean, I worshipped at Calvary Chapel for almost eight years, and they have two distinctives in their in their doctrines. One is uh, the inerrancy of God's word, which I'm 100% on board with, and the second one is premillennialism. You know, dispensational pre-trib premillennialism. So, but I, I worshipped there for almost eight years, so I'm I'm totally willing to to continue to do that. Um, but I like it when when churches have unity on it. I do. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I, I have not,
2: other than and some of those some of those denominations like Calvary Chapel, I've not experienced too many churches that come down hard and say this is what we believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even even at um, you know OCRC, it's not brought up. Really, it's not even talked about.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, there's really no formal. Is it on mill? Well, I don't know. What <laughs> is? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, Honestly, I, I don't know. And, yeah. and if I were to ask, you know, Pastor Mark up there, I have a feeling he'd be like, well, you know, there's a lot of different views on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay. Right. You know? Uh, sure. So I don't even know. I don't even know where I fit squarely. Yeah. On that. But I think it's somewhere between Mill and Postman. Yeah. So I yeah. used to be dispensational pre Sure. That's when I first came to faith. That's what I was taught. That's what I believed. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. the more I got, I figured out that I was reformed. The more I started to look at, well, what—that's a different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. What is this viewpoint, and where are they coming from? Mm-hmm. And you know, read some RC's um, RC's books on that on the Last right. Days according to Jesus. Yep. And was kind of like, huh, okay. Yeah. You know, I can see this, uh, but never, you know. I don't feel
0: like I really got
2: seated squarely in, sure. in one position. So,
0: I, I know one of the things uh, that Elizabeth and I have experienced going to Calvary, and this is this this may be one of those you know confirmation biases where if you're told long enough one thing you immediately it's kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. But um, it it seems that when you have an eschatology of a pretty bleak eschatology, meaning that, um, you know, the ship's going down. Don't polish brass on a, on a sinking ship. Get as many people off the ship as you can. Uh, you know, uh, eschatology then becomes like the impetus for just getting people saved, mm. which is mm-hmm. which is not necessary. I mean, an urgency in getting people saved is good, but it can also be like, hey, anything that you're doing in life, anything that you're doing in building your culture, that's all kind of secondary, it's all kind of like not very important because Jesus is going to come back any minute. And so, you know, why go to all the, why to go to all that trouble? I'm not, I'm not saying everybody I know holds that view. It's it's just kind of like, it seems to be the natural progression. If you think it out to the end that, okay, Jesus is coming back any second. So therefore I really only have one thing to do and anything else is, is distracting me from that one thing. Actually, had an acquaintance who. When I was going to school
2: for nursing, uh, who said to me, "Why?" Mm-hmm. That was their reasoning. Why waste your time with college when you know? Don't you see the way the world's going? Mm-hmm. Surely the Lord's going to return soon. Like, shouldn't you focus on other things? And I just, I just didn't feel like that really mm-hmm. made a lot of sense. Like, I got to live my life still too. Yeah, sure. You uh, know, well, you said I think that urgency with getting people saved. There's not,
3: absolutely nothing wrong with that, but I think that. Um, we're still kind of called to carry out the day to day yep well I plan on making another 20 years and I'm a pre-trip guy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I'm not thinking that that way at all sure you know, just mm-hmm. so you know that, of course I'm not thinking a lot Yeah, I'm going to be real interested to look more into this yeah see how you guys are being drawn astray. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've,
0: I've told you that MacArthur is, you know, he is, he's a reformed guy. He's, he knows his Bible. I wouldn't want to debate him in, ever, but he's, he's, he's a little bit of an oddity in being a reformed guy who holds to dispensational premillennialism Not, not a lot of, really, not a lot of guys in his class do, you know, uh, they, but anyways, I, I, it's not, it's not unusual that we hold to these views since they're so widely held. That's where I learned it first. MacArthur? Oh, really? That's so... Oh, man. So now I
4: disagree with RC <laughs> on pedo-baptism, and now I'm disagreeing <laughs> with MacArthur, and this is a bad <laughs> spot true. to be in. <laughs> my uh, is rocking a <laughs> hard work. Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I like the inclination, because I, I, like I said, I have made... Uh, I don't know if I've made an effort to avoid studying it, but I certainly have not put forth any effort to study, because it's kind of like a... It, yeah, like like you said, the, there's a there's a divisiveness to it that if you veer, mm. it seems there are certain brands of Christianity that it's like heathen.
3: Sure. Heretic. You know? Right.
4: And so I mean, but my natural like if I were to throw a label on it right now, it's probably non dispensational amillennialism. Mm. Like that like sure. that from the cursory reading that I did in terms of like yeah. trying to describe myself yeah, that's kind of where I fall, but True. I've got a lot of flaws, so. I'll... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Frank's looking at me. Right?
3: Yeah. yeah, I know. Right? I'm like Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Frank. Exactly.
4: <laughs> yeah. So we're like, we're like on totally opposite ends of the spectrum, though. <laughs> I'm not even sure I'm a
0: Christian.
3: <laughs> 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 well, I would go that far. Okay,
0: that's
1: <laughs> not healthy. Okay.
0: You, you know, that, it wasn't in this video, but it was in a <laughs> real short video I watched. They were they were talking about the different um, the different extremes. Some some people go to holding these, and and some uh, the premillennialists will hold to the fact that if you're not actively looking for and anticipating the return of Christ, exactly. did did he say that? Yeah, he that he did, did, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, you could you could miss it. Um, and you know, that's, that, that, I mean, we all want Jesus to come back. Like everybody in this room wants Jesus to come back tonight. Like there's, unless you're an unmarried young man, you want Jesus to come back
3: tonight.
0: (laughs) 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 Uh, Uh, we already made it past that.
4: Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Life goals. Um, I'll, when
3: I,
0: when I post this, I'll, I'll connect up this video. Of course you guys can, or you can find it too. Of course, find the Q and A. Uh, Q- 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 a us to do the Q&A. That evening of eschatology, that two-hour-long mm-hmm. conversation, that's really, really good. The, this is actually the one view that's not represented during the debate. Um, they they have a, pre, a historic pre-mill, which is different than dispensational pre-mill. They have a historic pre-mill guy. They have Sam Storms, who's a part of that. He's doing the ah-mill, and then Doug Wilson's doing the post-mill. Uh, post-mill.